Before I begin, I want to give you a quote from Pastor Spurgeon this morning regarding the importance of God's Word in the application of sanctification in our lives. Quote, The truth is the sanctifier, and if we do not hear or read the truth, we shall not grow in sanctification. We only progress in sound living as we progress in sound understanding. Christ's prayer is, sanctify them through thy truth. The more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate a man from the world unto the service of God. Close quote. Spurgeon's words here in this quote are an echo of what the Apostle Paul declares in Colossians 3, 1 to 11. So please turn there with me in your Bible so I can read that passage. In Colossians 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Here the Apostle Paul is encouraging and directing the church by stating that Jesus' work that was previously mentioned in chapter 2 has transformed them eternally. And he brings that back up in the first four verses. It's transformed them eternally, therefore it should transform them practically, as we see throughout the rest of this chapter. In verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul reminds us that Christ's sacrificial work transformed our eternal position before God. Now, this is the principle of regeneration, is what we're seeing here. We've been made new. We have new life in Christ the principle of regeneration. But the Bible doesn't just give us principles. God gives us directions. In verses 5 to 11, Paul reminds us that this this new position before God should create new affections in our hearts. Now, this is the practice of sanctification that he's speaking of. First, we see the principle of regeneration. You're raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And now you see that that should affect you in this life. So this is the practice of sanctification being spoken of here in verses 5 to 11. We don't 
live a Christian life in theory. It's in practice that the work of Christ is made manifest to the world. You are his ambassadors. You are the salt and the light. And Christ is seen through the living out of your faith in practice. However, at this time when Paul's writing, there were some false teachers that were teaching the opposite of this. That's why this comes in. The false teachers at Colossae were teaching that that your sanctification process could be simply done by you pulling up your own bootstraps by following their rituals, their regulations, and their ascetic practices. But here, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that true, true sanctification, true inward transformation takes place because of regeneration. It's the evidence of regeneration. And it's, it's driven by joy over what Christ has accomplished for us. It's an act of worship from the heart that drives us to put aside our old ways of living and put on what we have been given in Christ so that we would make much of him in this life. The way that Paul will frame this up here and in the sister book, Ephesians, is, is basically to put off and put on. It means cast away and sink into. That's what he's talking about. Cast away what was crucified with Christ at the cross. It's been disregarded. It's, it's been dealt with. And put on what Christ has given you, which is new life. It's made to magnify God and his grace through your life being conformed into the image of Jesus. Presently, progressively, and one day eternally. What we see in Scripture is that God wills to display practically what he's done to us inwardly through Christ's work, not our own. We see that in this text. In verses 1 to 11, again, Paul reminds us that if we set our minds on Christ's accomplishments, it will transform us personally, he'll mention here relationally he'll mention here and it'll do so joyfully as you'll see toward the end of this in 5 to 11 he's telling us that if we set our minds on christ on what he did what he has granted us through his sacrifice we will begin to long for what god wants by putting off what christ died for you no longer want to live in the life that you lived that crucified christ when you think about what he's done what he sacrificed what he promised, you put off what Christ died to overcome for us. And you'll long to put on what will honor the Lord Jesus. And isn't that the testimony of your heart? Now, I know it's not the perfection of our lives, but it's the direction of our lives if we are born again. We long to make much of our Savior, not in theory, but in practice. Because Christ left us here to be his witness. So what I, what I see as I'm studying through this text is, is this, and this will be your outline, okay? If we, if we set our mind on what Christ did for us, it will, number one, crucify our flesh. Crucify our flesh. If we set our mind on what Christ did for us, it will, number two, cleanse our heart or our affections. It'll cleanse our heart. And if you set your mind on what Christ did for us, it will also, number three, consecrate our lives. Consecrate 
our lives. It'll crucify our flesh. It'll cleanse our heart and consecrate our lives, set our lives apart for his praise. There in, in verses all the way 1 to 11, you can see the things that I mentioned earlier. There's a principle of regeneration talked about that leads to the practice of sanctification. And, and more specifically, in verses 5 to 8, Paul is going to move from personal sanctification to relational sanctification. I'm not sure if you've ever studied this and looked at this, but this is important. He deals with the individual, and then he deals with you in your relationships with others in these commandments. Put off things that hinder your relationship with God personally, and put off things that hurt your relationship with God's people personally and relationally. You'll see that as we go through this, I pray. But first, in Colossians 3, 5-7, Paul's telling us if we set our mind on Christ, it will, number one, crucify our flesh personally. It'll crucify our flesh personally, or the old King James, it'll mortify our flesh personally. He's basically saying if you set your mind on what Christ did for us, if you think about this humbling truth, it should put to death the desires and the vices that dominated your life and that drove Christ to the cross in your place. Look what it says, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, etc. I'm going to go through these individually. Let me, let me do that in a moment. But let me say this. He, he's saying, this is a command from God. This is an imperative. It's not an indicative. The reason we do this is mentioned in the first four verses. It indicates there should be a change of life. And then he comes along and says, now here is the command. Put to death. We're commanded to personally and practically put to death that which is earthly in you. You know what that is? That is your flesh and your mind. Put to death what dominated you in your life before Christ. Your flesh and your mind, which was corrupt because of sin's nature. And now he's speaking to Christians and he says, look, though you're, you're regenerated, you're still stuck with this flesh that's still not made perfect. You still have to deal with indwelling sin. And you need to be aware that it is there and it is crouching at the door and it will consume you if you don't slay it. You must put it to death practically and personally. It is destructive. And saints, it's destructive to us as it was to us before we were saved. If you sin, there are still consequences even as a believer. These sins lead to the destruction of the flesh. It leads to separation from fellowship with God. He says, put these to death. It's a serious language here. Slay them, mortify them, murder them, if you will. Put to death that which dominated you when you were dead in your sins. Now, he's, he's focusing here on personal sins in the heart. Sins that destroy us from the inside out. These are the inner desires of the old man, speaking of the unredeemed flesh, the unredeemed heart even. He says, this is what used to mark you. 
and it would destroy you from the inside out. But as, as new creations, which is his argument in verses 1 to 4, it, as new creations in Christ, we're commanded now and empowered now by the Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us, we're commanded to put to death. Again, mortify. Mortify or put to death means to pull up from the roots. When you pull up a, a tree from the roots, it's dead. It's not coming back to life. It's not going to show up in that same spot anymore. He says, yank it up from the roots. Yank up that which is already dead in Christ. That's his point. It's already dead. Christ was crucified for these sins that you once lived in. No longer should you be dominated by them. Consider your old life, he says. Consider your old life as dead. Think about this. Consider your old life as dead. Necros is the word. It means dead and corrupt, decayed, no life. Put to death these things. And, and he's saying that's something you have to do intentionally. This is not just let go and let God. I'm saved. I'm going to be living a Christian life now. I'm just going to wander through life and God's going to make me righteous and take away my lusts and my temptations. That's not what he's saying. Put to death involves an intentional resolve to bring your flesh under the Holy Spirit's directions. It means to be filled or empowered or controlled by the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? What does that look like? Well, go to Philippians 2, 12 to 16. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out... Your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out there means cultivate or, or display it. Okay, pull it up so people can see it. Pull it up so it's made evident. Work it out. Cultivate it. Now that's, that's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. He's not saying the Holy Spirit's going to cultivate this. He says you cultivate this. Now you have the Holy Spirit to empower you, but work out your own salvation. Cultivate this yourself. Do so with fear or with reverence and with trembling before God. Because he says this in verse 13. For it is God, here's the reason you do this, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow. We cultivate, but we do it through the power of God. So who's doing the cultivating? Both. God is at work in us, quickening us, making us want to Turn away from sin and self-righteousness and cultivate what he's accomplished in us. We're being dominated, directed by his spirit to do this. Look what it goes on to say. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast. Notice. How do we do this? How do we cultivate? How do we grow in sanctification? By holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Our putting to death indwelling sin is contingent on walking in the word, feeding on the word, setting our minds on what Christ has done in the word, in God's revelation. 
He's, he's not saying sanctification again is let go and let God. He's saying, look, you must intentionally crucify the flesh. Be, be aware of your sins. See them in light of the scriptures. And, and live out your convictions practically by putting these things to death practically and personally. You do that when you recall what Christ did to save you. How do we go on sinning when we know what Christ did for us on the cross? We go on sinning and we, we regret it. We hate it. We despise it. And so God grants us repentance to turn from it. Through God's grace, we know that we're set free from the things that dominated our lives, these vices that he mentions. We know that Jesus, by God's grace, died for us personally. And he did so for this purpose, to transform us inwardly and outwardly. We're saved unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us. You're not saved to put your light under a basket. You're saved to testify to the world that though I am still a sinner, but saved by grace, I am still struggling with temptation and lust and the flesh. Yet by God's grace, I am forgiven and I want to live in such a way that makes much of the one who forgave me. When I fail, I look to Christ. I testify that I have been forgiven by the work of another, not my own. And I move forward. And I don't grow weary because God has declared in Christ that I am a new man, a new creation. And I want to live differently now because of that personally. So that's why he, why he says what he says here in verse 5. Since you know what I said in verses 1 to 4, therefore put to death and intentionally decide to deal with these issues. And then he gives a list of them, right? Now again, these are personal sins that destroy us from the inside out. He says, put to death the things that, that dominated your heart as an unbeliever, that still you struggle with as a believer. Put to death sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. This encompasses all sexual sins. Sexual sin of every type. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality. It's all in there. Put it to death. Crucify this for which Christ was already crucified for in your place. Put to death impurity. Now impurity is, is lust motivated thoughts. Desires that drive the mind to go deeper into sin so that you're plotting and you're planning this adulterous affair or this, this sexual you know, encounter. Put that kind of Lust-motivated thought aside. Put it to death. Slay it. Because Christ died for it. That no longer has dominion over you. Recognize that Christ has the victory over that in your place. He died to set you free from these things that dominated your minds. And you're plotting. And you're planning. Then he says, put to death passion. Now, passion is not always a bad thing. But in this context, he's still speaking about this indwelling sinful desire in the heart that's related to sexual sin. It doesn't just mean sexual sin here, but it's certainly connected in the context that we see this in. But he's simply saying this, put to death unbridled lust. 
that motivates and moves you to unbridled actions. There's a progression here. You begin to think about these things in your mind, sexual immorality. Then you begin to plot them, impurity in your mind. Then all of a sudden you start to find ways to put them into application, into action. He says, put that to death. Let that die with Christ. Don't resurrect that part of your flesh. Know that Christ died for that. For your unbridled lust that moves to unbridled actions. That's what destroys families. That's what destroys marriages. That's what destroys a culture. Put to death evil desires. Evil desires simply are this. It's cravings. It's an insatiable craving. The lust for what is biblically forbidden. That's what he's talking about here. You know these things are forbidden in Scripture. Put those thoughts to death by looking to Jesus. Looking at what Christ did on that cross. When he was bare on that cross in your place, naked in your place, being, being under the wrath of God in your place. Know that the shame that fell on him was the shame that belonged to you because of these evil desires in your old flesh. These evil cravings to do what God has forbidden you to do. Put it to death because of that. Put to death covetousness. That again is an insatiable desire for more in order to satisfy selfish desires. It's it's, it's greed. It's a desire to have more and more in order to satisfy what you want in your flesh. That's what dominates the unbeliever's actions starts in the heart then it changes the actions does it not the love of money is the root of all evil money is not the evil it's the love it's the greed it's that insatiable desire for more so i can have more so i can do more for me he says put these to death and then he says something very interesting put to death idolatry basically basically though if you look at that look back at that verse At the end, he says, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. He's basically summing up all these things, and in particular, covetousness as idolatry. Put to death living for self-pleasure and not for God's pleasure. Living for yourself, living in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires and covetousness is self-idolatry. It's seeking to... Please yourself, honor yourself, rather than honoring Christ. And in verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us why we should put these things to death. Right? We're commanded by God to put these things to death for this reason. Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, saints, where did the wrath of God fall For you, is it future or is it the past? Did it fall upon Jesus Christ? If it did, you have no fear of wrath in the future. But shouldn't that change the way you live presently? That's what he's saying. People who live in these, verse 5, he says, they're going to face the wrath of an almighty God who created them to give him praise. But you used to live with those kind of things in your heart. You walked in them. You lived them out when you were living or alive in them, when you were living in your sin. Here's the motivation. 
that's not going to be what's going to happen to you. You're not going to face the wrath of God. Therefore, you should want to rejoice that Christ has already faced the wrath in your place for these very things. At the cross, the lust of the world was crucified. It was crucified. And now you live in your new life in the one who lives forever, which is Christ. That's your new life. The life you live, you live now by faith in the one who gave himself up for you. So you should want to live differently in light of that. Now, let me ask you a question when we think about this. If you're focused on Christ and what he's done for you, and then you begin to see that there are evil desires in your flesh, indwelling sin begins to crop up, show up. It begins to start to sort of direct your thoughts. You know what I'm talking about. When you're alone, when you're angry, when things don't go right at work, when your spouse is harsh to you, and all of a sudden some of these things begin to rise up inside of your heart, what do you do? Are you immediately and intentionally running to the cross? Are you putting the flesh to death immediately? Or are you spending time entertaining these thoughts And if we spend time entertaining these thoughts for a few moments, we begin to plot how to pursue these sinful desires. And then sometimes we actually go forth and do these things. Now, the doing is only the evidence of the sin in the heart. And if you don't deal with it in the heart, it will bring about destructive consequences in your life. We must put it to death in the heart. We must deal with it in its seed form. When it crops up, when it's beginning to take root and show up in our life, we must put it to death, pull it up by the roots. But how do we do that? That's, that's the question I hope you're asking, I hope you're thinking. Um, how do we practically put to death these passions in the heart, these sinful desires, these temptations in our in our unredeemed flesh? How do we practically put them to death? Well, here's my answer. I believe that that we crucify our flesh personally and practically by, number one, meditating on the reason for Christ's crucifixion. I think you start there. You start by meditating on the reason for Christ's crucifixion when you're tempted internally, personally. I think that will transform your inward desires when you immediately go to the cross. Immediately think about Christ, what he did, what he accomplished, why he did it. If you meditate on this, and that means to study, to roll around in the mind, what's going to happen? You're going to have a renewed mind. The things that were dominating your thoughts will soon be overcome by the truth of God's grace in Christ. If you meditate on why Jesus died for you personally. If you do that, it will train you how to think differently about your sins. You will see the sinfulness of sin that that caused the sinless one to go to the cross and receive God's wrath in our place. Now that will sanctify your, your mind. But you're going to have to meditate 
It's not let go and let God. It's you being accountable to God to meditate on his word of truth about why Christ died for you. Saints, we know this here, and I believe everybody knows this here. Jesus didn't die for you so you can just go to heaven and have a great life eternally. He saved you to make much of him here on the earth and eternally in glory. It's not about us. The crucifixion is about the glory of God made manifest through redeemed sinners who are transformed by the mighty power of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Creator. Look what it says in Titus 2 practically here to understand how we can crucify our flesh. Titus 2, Titus 2, 11 to 14. Here in Titus 2, 11, you'll see how we should train our minds to think differently about sin by focusing on, focusing on the reason for Christ's crucifixion. Now, now, church, I, I'm telling you this in a very practical, simple way. There's no super mystical way to deal with indwelling sin. God's given us the means of grace right here in His Word. Look to Christ. Meditate on what Christ did and why He did it for you personally. And saints, it will change your thinking about sin practically. Titus 2.11 tells us this. For the grace... For the unmerited favor of God has appeared. Now, I do believe this is speaking of the incarnation of Christ. God's grace appearing on earth, made manifest, grace and truth in Christ, right? He shows up. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Saints, that's why Christ was crucified. This is why Jesus died for you. And it's the truth of this that he says in verse 12 that will train you to renounce ungodliness. Truth, the truth of what Christ has done will change the way you think about sin because you were redeemed to be purified for him. In other words, you're saved so that his work in you, this, this pot of clay, will be, will be seen by the world that this is, not, this is not of this earth. This is supernatural. Something has transpired inside this person, this sinner, who's now saved by God's grace. And your life is forever changed, practically here on earth. But you need to meditate on this. You need to meditate on why you are a Christian. Why did God elect you? It wasn't about you. It was about making much of Christ, who can take lumps of clay and turn them into trophies of his grace. 
And he wants that to be seen presently in this present age. That means now when you live your life here on earth. Now go back with me to Colossians 3, 8 to 9. Paul's telling us here in verses 8 and 9 that if you set your mind on Christ, it will also secondly not only crucify your flesh personally, it will also cleanse your hearts relationally. Relationally. It doesn't, it's, it's not just about you. When you're saved by God's grace, it's still not about you. Even though he's dealing with you personally here in these first few verses, now he's saying there's another reason why you've been saved. There's another reason you're going to put away sins and live a sanctified life. It's not just so that you don't have problems in this life, so that you don't struggle with these problematic sins of our life. But you're saved to relate to others in the body of Christ and the unbelievers in the world. If you set your mind on Christ, it will cleanse your heart relationally. The commands here in verses 8 and 9 focus on relational sins. These are sins that identified how unbelievers destroy other unbelievers outwardly, relationally. Look what it says in verse 8. But now, he gives us a second list, okay? It's a second list. But now you must put them all away. It's a command. Put away, he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, these aren't so much about you, but what you do to others. These are relational sins. And the command here is put them all away due to the old self dying with Christ. Put these away. These are what marked your relationships apart from Christ. And he says, you have put off these things. You have put off the old self. You have, in other words, shed the defiled garments that you wore in your sinful life. Now, most of you heard my illustration of this. I worked for the city of Juanette, and I worked for the sewage department. And they sent me down a sewer main in the big town of Juanette of 200 people. And the sewer main was clogged. And here's the high-tech work of Juanette, Oklahoma. They sent me down with a fire hose to run up inside one of the main lines and to blow it out. And the firemen thought it would be funny to turn on the hose about a foot into the hole and let it blow back on me. They had a good chuckle out of it. I was being sanctified in the process. Okay, I was covered in sewage, raw sewage. I went immediately out of the hole, didn't finish the job. My house was two blocks from where I was at. I ran to my house literally stripped my clothes off in the backyard, threw them down, went into the house, showered with bleach for an hour, I think. Went back out, and I did not think, man, I ought to put those clothes back on. Matter of fact, I set them on fire and burned them right where they were at. There was nothing in me that said, oh, I need to salvage those clothes. Listen, Sherry could have washed those clothes in bleach ten times. I would have never put them on again. Never. And if that's the case with just outward defilement, how should we feel about inward defilement that marked us? Should we want to put these back on again? 
these attitudes. He's dealing with relational attitudes here. He says, put off anger. Put it off. Put it away. Cast it aside, never to be picked up again. Put aside anger. Anger is vengeance. The heart of vengeance. Put aside wrath. Wrath is the stewing anger that gets in your heart when someone does you wrong and it just sort of boils up there and you just stew on it for a while and you decide what you're going to do and it leads to what we see here, malice. Malice is a desire to harm. And listen, all these things relate to how, how these will benefit you. Your vengeance is for you to be vindicated. Your stewing anger is to justify what happened to you. Your malice is to do harm so that you can advance. Then you slander them. It's a desire to harm others with your words to make you look better. Now, does any of this resonate with you guys? It does with me. Because these are the sins of the flesh. And these are the sins that cause problems in our relationships. When you have these things brewing inside of you. It goes on to lead to obscene talk. Now, sometimes we think about obscene talk and we think about those rated R movies. That's really not what he's talking about here, though that could be lumped into this to some degree. But again, in the context, he's talking about offensive language that is intended to hurt other people. It's using your mouth to mete out wrath towards somebody. Words cut deep and they do not heal quickly. That's obscene talk, using the mouth that God gave you to worship him with to hurt others. And it goes further to say, put off or put away lying. That's manipulation. A lie is basically a way of manipulating people to get what you want. He says, put these relational sins away that used to mark you. They destroyed your previous life. Don't put them back on in this new life in Christ. They were used to magnify yourself. Now you're called to magnify Jesus. Don't put these back on. And he's, he's very intentional in this. He says, put them off. That's putting the command on us. We must do something. We must be active in this process. We must intentionally address these actions in light of what Christ has promised us, what he accomplished for us. We must do this because these outward actions that begin in the heart, we begin to live in these things, we, we begin to look like an unbeliever again. This is the attitude of an unbeliever he's describing here. But put them away because, because you have put off the old self with its practices. Now let me ask you this. Do those attitudes, do those thoughts, those actions still rise up in your hearts today? If we're all honest, we're going to say yes, they do. They do. I long for the day that Christ comes and we are changed in a moment. This corruption puts on incorruption. Sin is forever dealt with in the flesh. But we're not there yet, saints. So we need to think about what we are to do when these thoughts and these actions and these attitudes rise up in us. And again, I want to give you something practical to do here. It's spiritual, but it's practical. If you're going to be cleansed in your heart, if you're going to cleanse the attitudes of your heart, you're going to have to study God's will for your life. 
See, these attitudes are all about your will, you getting what you want. The only way we can counter those and put those off is to put on what God wants. Never in Scripture are we told, put off, put off, put off, without being told, put on, put on, put on. So here we're being told, put these off. But the only way we can do that is by putting something else on. And by studying God's will that's revealed in His Word, His revealed will, we will be able to cleanse our hearts relationally. Is it God's will that you have anger and malice and obscene talk and lying in your heart when you're dealing with others? No. What is God's will? Well, let's, let's think about that. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians 4. If you think about these things, your, your inner attitudes will be changed. If you study what we're going to look at here, if you study about why regeneration is intended to change you, transform you relationally, according to these passages we're going to read, you're going to live differently. You're putting on something. You're studying. You're not just meditating now. Now you're studying. Now you're, you're looking at it in depth. How does this affect me relationally? How does my regeneration change my relationships with sinners and with saints? The first passage we're going to look at here in Ephesians deals with your relationship to other believers. Look what it says, verse 17 of chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off, cast away your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The study of God's word renews your attitude, your actions, your thoughts. Verse 24, as we're being renewed in the word of God, he says to put on or let it sink in, sink into the new life created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Look what it goes on to say. Knowing that you're in righteousness and holiness, he says, therefore, put away falsehood. That's lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry. There's anger. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. This is greed. This is covetousness. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Then, let, notice this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for edification, for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to who? Thanksgiving to God in Christ Jesus for saving us, for taking away our old life and giving us a new life in Christ. Now, that new life in Christ here is changing the way we live relationally. It's changing our attitudes toward those around us. We no longer look at them as an impediment to our own pleasure and our own pursuits, but now we see them as our partner, one that we want to invest our lives in, one that we don't want to corrupt, one that we want to edify. When our hearts are clean by being immersed in God's word and his will for us, We will live differently relationally here on earth. We'll consider others as more important than ourselves. It will change us if you consider and study why you were regenerated. You're regenerated to give much thanksgiving to God through this evident work that he is doing in your life relationally, not just personally. 1 Peter 2, 9 goes further to tell this to us. 2, 9 to 12. He says, but you, speaking of God's elect, the saved, the regenerated saints, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you you get that there? That you, that's the purpose clause here. That's the statement. That's why you are regenerated. That's the reason for your regeneration, the reason you're called apart, the reason you're a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession is so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, pilgrims and exiles To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. The reason... We are to proclaim his excellencies is to glorify him. But in the context of in the world around us, by living differently, by living honorably, by abstaining from the passions of the flesh, we stand out from the lost. And they ponder this and they wonder about this and they ask us about the hope that lies within us because of this. And through this, we magnify Jesus relationally. It's what Ephesians was about in the church. Here it's about in the world. Our new life in Christ should magnify his work and our relationship to him. And it's magnified through our relationships to others by having a new attitude. 
You won't develop a new attitude toward unbelievers or toward those who hurt you in the church unless you are studying God's will for putting you here. Why did God put you here to rub shoulders with a bunch of born-again sinners so that you could help edify one another? But that means you're going to annoy one another in the process because you still sin. I still sin. And we are going to irritate one another at times. And we need to, at those times, exercise what we know to be true about our relationship in Christ. And we should forgive one another. We should love one another. We should be patient with one another. Because it makes much of Jesus through this relationship. It testifies to His power and love working through us. His agape is made manifest by our love for one another. That's how we cleanse our hearts relationally, practically. Study why regeneration was given to you. Study why you were put in the body. Study God's word in Ephesians 4. Study God's word in 1 Peter 2. It will conform you more and more into the image of Christ. His attitudes will dominate your mind. And then it will dominate your words and your actions. Now, I would love to give you like five little steps to make you a holy person. But if I did that, if I did that, we would legalistically cling to that. And we would think that we're okay because we're doing that. And self-righteousness would crop up in us because others aren't doing it as good as us. But God's word gives us something greater than five steps. He gives us the living power of Christ through this revelation of His will that we can study, that we can relate to, that we can interact with, that will change us. But it begins with you meditating and studying God's Word. If you want to put to death these things and put away these things, you're going to have to put something in their place. That's God's Word. Feed on it. Spend time daily reading it, sharing it. Now, let's look at my last point finally here in Colossians 3, 10 to 11. If you do these things, if you meditate on these things and you study these things, it will help do what my third point says, which is basically to consecrate your life. If you set your mind on Christ, how do you set your mind on Christ? You go to God's word. You see the revelation of what Christ has done, what God has promised in Christ. And it will consecrate your life, but it will consecrate our lives joyfully. Not just legalistically, not just, you know, with commandments that bind us, but rather with joy that sets us free to live a holy life for his glory. If you set your mind on Christ, it'll do that. In verses 10 and 11, the command to to put on the new self is seen. Put on the new self that focuses on renewing our minds because of what Christ has accomplished. That accomplishment secures us. Look what it says in verse 10. And, and have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. You have put on, verse 10, it says, you have put on the new self. 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That knowledge is speaking of the word of truth, the words of Christ previously given in Colossians. And and the word renewed is an active word. It's not it's not you're being restored. That's not what it means. You are being given a new quality of life, and it's, a, it's fresh every moment in Christ. You're continually being renewed as you feed on God's Word. It's not just a matter of living a, a little more progressive life like Christ, but rather you're living in Christ, in His life, as you feed on His Word. His Word will renew you, will fresh you, make you new every moment. It will purify your minds. We sang that song, Psalm 19. The Word of God is pure. It helps you purify your thoughts. It helps you to grow in your new life in Christ. It helps you to magnify Jesus joyfully. You're not just putting aside these sins grudgingly. You're putting them aside willfully because you want to make much of Jesus. Put on, put on this new self that's being renewed in the knowledge that's given to us in Scripture after the image of its creator. Who is our creator? Well, Paul has already told us that the creator and sustainer of all things is Christ. But in particular, when it comes to regeneration, it's Christ. We're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator, Christ, who saved us to make much of him. Church, inward sanctification leads to outward sanctification. But but inward transformation doesn't come through five steps. It doesn't come through rituals or regulations. Inward transformation can only be produced by regeneration. If, If this kind of sanctification is a constant worry and struggle and something that you hate, you need to examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Now, I'm not saying if you struggle with sin, you're not a Christian. I'm saying if you if you hate this idea of always having to grow in the in Christ, grow in holiness, study God's word, what a burden that is. If that's the case, you need to examine whether you've been regenerated or not. Do you have a new heart? A new heart implies new desires, new affections. And if you have that, then sanctification will flow out of it. It will be the passion and the joy of your heart. Sanctification flows out of a heart that is regenerated and directed by the Holy Spirit through God's Word. It's the revelation of God's Word that opens our eyes to see the grace of God in Christ. It's the revelation of God's Word that opens our eyes to see the sinfulness of sin. It's the revelation of God's Word that opens our eyes so that we can understand how precious those people are around us and we can love them unconditionally. It's the revelation of God that tells us that we are destined to live differently presently. Verse 11, 10 and 11, tells us that. He's basically telling us that we are new creations in Christ. Christ is our all and in us all. Not because we make ourselves holy, but because He will be seen as holy through the power of His reconciling work lived out in our lives joyfully as we rest in His promises. We're no longer in Christ because of some ethnic reason that we're a Jew or that we're a practicing ritualist. 
Now we're in Christ by God's grace. And the evidence of that is a changed life. So we should rejoice in this. Are you doing that? Are you joyfully consecrating your entire life? Is that your desire this morning? That can only take place if you're spending time with him in his word, meditating on his will, studying his purposes for your life and recalling his own desires for you. What God desires for you is revealed in his word. Let me give you this last point. Point of application. I believe we consecrate our lives joyfully and practically by number three, recalling Jesus's petition. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17. When you lack spiritual motivation for holiness, when you lack spiritual joy, remember what Christ's desire is for you. That will transform your motives and your lives. If you recall Jesus' high priestly petition, it will transform how you live presently and it will make you full of joy. As Peter would say, joy unspeakable, full of doxa, full of praise, full of glory. Look at Jesus' prayer quickly with me in John 17. John 17, verse 6. If you want to consecrate your life, if you want to set your life apart entirely to God, joyfully give your life to God and to, to live for his praise, you need to remember what Jesus prayed right here. Recall this. Spend time in this text. John seventeen six. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying, petitioning. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, here's Jesus' prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying that you would have his joy, saints. And when does he want you to have his joy? When you are set apart for his purposes. Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying 
that you would be filled with joy through consecration. Just as he consecrated himself to do the Father's will on earth. He is saying, if you want my joy, this is what you do. You consecrate your life unto me. You live in light of what I have given you. You live in light of what I've promised you. And that will cultivate joyful sanctification in you. Saints, that, that prayer that Jesus prayed was answered, and this room is full of the answer, right here. This prayer is answered every time a sinner is saved by God's grace, according to God's promises. Every regenerated soul will long for what Jesus is praying for, because that's his will. Every regenerated soul will long to know their creator, their savior, Because that's God's will and it's God's ultimate purpose for sending Christ to redeem us. That's why we're saved. Knowing, knowing that this is God's will means you must know God's word. If you know God's word, you'll want to live in light of that word joyfully because of these promises that we see here in John 17 by Jesus in his prayer. This should drive our convictions. This should transform our actions We should want to magnify what Jesus has prayed for. And what Jesus prays for, he gets, saints. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. In glory, completely. On earth, progressively. Personally, relationally, and joyfully. But if you want to be holy in this present age, you're going to have to Dig into God's word. If you want to magnify Jesus presently through your heart and your actions and your attitudes, you're going to have to dig into God's word daily. You're going to have to live it out personally. You're going to have to share it joyfully. Because that's God's design. That's God's will. There's no shortcut to sanctification. He wants you to know him and live in light of your relationship to him. If you do that, it'll transform the way you live and it'll glorify Christ. Colossians 3, 15 and 16 tells us that if we dig into God's word daily, if we live it out personally and joyfully, it will transform our lives. It will reveal the glory of Christ and his work in us. Look what it says in 3:15, And let the peace of Christ... You don't know the peace of Christ unless you dig into the word and see how peace came to you through Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule, means to dominate in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Then he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and this is what it will produce. It'll change you internally. It'll change you practically. It'll change you relationally. And it'll change you joyfully. You'll give thanks to God as you are renewed by his word. Never underestimate the power of God's word. God has given it to us to sanctify us. 
And sanctification isn't just a matter of trying to fit into a form of holiness. Sanctification is a relationship with God that wants to cultivate this desire in us to magnify Jesus. And I really believe if you set your minds on the goal, which is Christ Jesus, the sins will fall off. Because you're focused on Him, you're meditating on Him, you're putting on Christ, and you're no longer picking up the flesh. There's no time for that. There's a lost world, there are hurting saints, and the glory of Christ is at stake. Let's set our minds on what is above, where Christ is, so that we could live differently here on earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time you've given us. We pray that you would continue to cultivate sanctification in us as we submit our, our minds and our lives to your word and your revelation. Jesus, we thank you for the power that comes through your resurrected life to do this. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes to see how to do this. We thank you for the church that you bring around us to help us walk in this to help us be accountable to this. We thank you for your ongoing grace. It's not grace for a moment, but it's grace being renewed as we are growing in the word. And we thank you for that, that unmerited favor that is conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. This is our passion. This is our desire. This is our goal for the future. We know that it will be accomplished because you are at work in us to will and to do all these things for your own glory. But Lord, thank you for letting us benefit from it. Thank you for the joy of being able to sing about it, to share it, to grow in it, to know you and to be known by you. We thank you for this. We give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen.